Our scripture reading today um, comes from 2 Corinthians 12, 14 to, to 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You can follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is God's word. All right, there's a thunderous good morning from everybody. Um, we're in our, our, last, our last week of going through uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's second letter uh, to the Corinthians. 
And so this is our last, last sermon going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through the entire letter of 2 Corinthians. Um, and I think we've learned a lot, and there's still a lot more to learn. <laughs> this is a big letter. There's a lot in it. Uh, but let's pray first. Father, I thank you for breathing life into my lungs today and our lungs. I thank you that you've given us the ability to read and listen to your word. I pray that you would open it to us, that we would understand your word to us today, the word above all words, the name of Jesus, that we would have his name pressed on our hearts and in our lives, that we would come to believe your gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Sorry, it's dark in here. Just one quick apology before. Um, It's dark because there was a flickering light, and um, if you're very sensitive to that, it's kind of like a strobe light, and so didn't want that to happen. So now we have this dynamic going on. It's a little dark. Um, but there will be light. So um, the, the default mode of every church uh, that, that, that does church, that does this church thing uh, without authenticity, is that what it inevitably happens is that on the surface, it might look super pretty and beautiful. Um, it, it, it will look powerful and, and very attractive and influential. It'll be fast-growing. It'll have great message. That's on the outside. But on the inside, it can be full of ugly. It can be full of sin and hate and slander. Discord, as we read. Because inside, it's emptied of the power of the cross. So the sermon, the last sermon in the series, uh, is about what the Apostle Paul hoped for his church in Corinth, and in turn, it's really, it's really what I hope, what, I, what I'm praying for our church here, Redemption Church, that we would become a, a, a people and a place that is full of, of grace and love and fellowship, that that would be who we are, the, the core of our identity. Um, when, when my... Uh, Oh, just sharing a little bit. When, when my family first came here um, in, at the end of 2016, um, we actually experienced that love and grace and fellowship with many of you. And I think I, I, as we're receiving new members and hearing uh, all, all the wonderful things that the Lord has done in each person's life, um, keep seeing that again. You know, more and more grace and love and fellowship. That's continuing. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be seeing and to be kind of on the front lines, I think Jeff, you could be, and Bob, you could be, you know, say, say the same with me, that you, it's, been, it's been incredible to watch this happen. Um, and we want that to happen more. And so the question is, uh, how do we stay there? How do we stay a church that is full of grace and love and fellowship? To be a church full of, of grace, love, and fellowship, we need, I think, to understand three things, and really commit to three things. We need to first... Know a father's love. Maybe you know that hymn, uh, How Deep a Father's Love for Us. We need to experience grace in practice. Grace in practice. And, and third, we need to understand what fellowship, really um, see what fellowship looks like. 
And, and all of that re- requires for us to be honest. It requires for us to, as the series has been titled, to be authentic. And so we have to be authentic about three things. We need to be honest about our identity. We need to be honest about our own sin. And we have to be honest about our humanity. So let's look at this first thing, a father's love. We have to be honest about our identity. Um, so I, I want um, almost everybody to do uh, this with me. Um, there's one that you do not have to do this in, in, our, in our group right now, but, but I want everyone to do this with me. I want you to close your eyes, okay? Now imagine this. Imagine this. Um, imagine that you're a parent or a guardian over a person who's younger than you are, and maybe you don't have to imagine anymore because that's you now. So either way, grab onto that person in your mind who you love so much, who's so close to you, and you don't want to let go. And imagine this person is, is, is fading away because of poor choices, substance abuse, they're, they're in with the wrong crowd, they're isolated, they're alone, they're consumed. Keep your eyes closed, keep imagining. They're consumed with body image and they're literally fading away. Or they're withdrawn, they're just shut off, they're distant. And since we're still imagining, how do you respond to this person who you love so much? Do you watch, stand by, and do you do nothing? I think, I think maybe in our imaginations right now even, most of us are already springing into action. You do anything. I think most of us are already springing into action. You'd spend the money, you'd consult the right people, you'd seek out a pastor or a ministry leader, you'd seek professional help. You'd put your house on the market or you'd move if it meant sparing this person from the harm you see is coming their way. Being so desperate, you might try to interfere. You might even start to look like a fool to others. You'd meddle to convince, persuade, get down to their level so they might listen and turn away from what's going to hurt them. You might act like a madman to get their attention and and wake them up, right? Say yes if that describes you. Does that describe you? Now open your eyes. That is where the Apostle Paul is at. That point of desperation. The church in Corinth, fall, uh, they, they fell into the wrong crowd. They drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, they were close to leaving uh, the Apostle Paul as their leader and the gospel message itself. Paul had been to Corinth two times before. Uh, this is going to now be his third time. Uh, coming. The first time was uh, when he planted the church. The second time was when he had that painful encounter with them. And uh, he kind of uh, retreated and, and, and stepped away um, for, for a bit and then came back. Um, and so here, picking up at, at, at verse 14, chapter 12. Paul's coming back for a third time now, pleading for those whom he loves. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And so here's something, here's a place where where Paul knows his identity uh, as church planner. He's not uh, seeking their money. He's seeking for Christ to be made known to them. 
He seeks their safety and their salvation. So he's not like these other leaders, the, the super apostles. And so more like a father, as a father to these Christians, he's responsible to God for them. He should never have had to write their, this letter, but because of the sneers and the slanders of, uh, of his uh, opponents, he has to defend himself. And um, no doubt this week, everybody here has heard of Brett Kavanaugh. Am I wrong? <laughs> everybody heard of that, heard that name swirling on the news? Uh, first of all, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is not the Apostle Paul, so I'm not making a parallel here with him, uh, just to clarify. And, but I think that this week in the news has reminded all of us, no matter what side or what sides or what group or party or whatever, you're, you're, whatever place you're on on that, right? Um, that anybody who is in a position of public authority will be attacked and will be questioned. That is, that is no doubt. That comes with the territory, okay? So however you parse that thing, let me tell you how the Apostle Paul, how he parsed the slander that he faced. When he was attacked, he doesn't get dirty, but he also doesn't distance himself and remove himself. So he does neither of those things. There's no fighting fire with fire, attack with attack. And there's also no acting like a tough guy, like he's invincible or he's untouchable or um, he's unmovable. What does he do? How does Paul react? First, he knows who he is. Maybe a better way to put it is he knows whose he is. He knows his identity. He knows his identity as a, as a Christian and as an apostle. That's what he's constantly gone back to. He's called by the Father's love in Jesus Christ. He's placed there by God. And so he continues to be vulnerable, authentic. Um, you can look back uh, chapters 10 through 13. I encourage you to reread those in, a, in a one fell swoop. You see Paul being patient, yet he's thoughtful. He's careful. He's bold, very bold in their face almost, but then gentle. He's playful yet serious. He acts like a father towards a son or a daughter. In her book, it's titled Hope Has Its Reasons. The author is Rebecca Pippert. She writes about how true, true love, it hates what destroys the people whom we love. And so she said this. She said, The more a father loves his son the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Um, thing is, when your identity is found, when it's found in Jesus and not in anything or anyone else, not in fame, not in a good name, not in money, power, sex, influence, prestige, when your identity is in Jesus alone, well, then when you see friends and you see family and you see loved ones and you see them drifting, you see them going down a, a, a path, you see them being duped by a lie. When you see someone going down a path that if they continue, it will lead to death. The loving thing that you must do is to warn them. That's the loving thing to do. It's what a father would do for a son or a daughter, as we were just imagining, right? It's what a father would do. But whenever we have to confront somebody else, someone else who has sinned, no matter how bad or how much or how often they have, we are always staring into a mirror every time. It is a mirror. Um, and that's why uh, Paul brings up the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's going back to an older practice in the book of Deuteronomy 
of bringing uh, two or three witnesses, um, uh, you know, to, to, to gather evidence. And so, so this, this has us pause and has us remember that the same person that I, if I'm to bring a charge or a judgment against somebody, the same person that I'm bringing it against could very well be doing the same thing back to me. So what we're after in confrontation is always, as, as Paul is, always about repentance and restoration, not a stiff upper lip of being right, but like a father's love for a child, seeking it out, being spent for over and over again, as Paul was for this church in Corinth, loving them as they needed to be loved. And so, I mean, as an encouragement, as we talk to people about church, as we share the gospel with other people, we always have to remember that I cannot, I can't be I can't feel superior or hold it over anybody else's head that I'm a Christian because God made me one. I didn't. And also, I can't talk down to somebody else. I can't, I can't point down like they're an ant because that was never God's posture towards me. This God who loves the lowly, I'm the lowly one whom he loved. And he, he reached down, he came down in his son Jesus, stooped to love me. So if we want to be a people in a place full of grace, love, and fellowship, the first thing we have to understand and we have to get and grasp is that Father's love. We have to be honest about our identity. The second thing is we need grace in practice. We have to be honest about our sin. Up front about it. So the reason Paul gets so dark, and maybe today that's the reason, oh, all of a sudden the, the lights are really dark. Um, the reason Paul gets so dark, verse 20, is that he was a realist. Um, so you're here today, and, um, and I bet some of you came to church this morning wondering, what am I supposed to wear to church today? Right? I bet you that crossed somebody's mind. I heard this was a Presbyterian church. Left my bow tie, bow tie at home. Um, do I need a certain tie? Do I need, you know, how do I need to dress to be here? Um, you're worried about what to wear. Do I have to wear clothes, clothes that look like I'm going to a funeral today, right? Do I have to put on my Sunday best? I got some nice skinny jeans I could wear. I don't know. Throwing it out there. With all of that, though, comes this idea that, that, that church is the place that I need to go to once I get my stuff together, right? Once, um, once I put enough makeup on, once I get into the right clothes, or, or I study the right things, or I impress the right people, well, then God's going to accept me. Then God's going to be okay with me. And nothing can be further from the truth of the gospel. Um, so it doesn't matter. I don't care if you come in a suit or a tie or a bow tie or a jumpsuit. <laughs> Those orange jumpsuits, I'm sure, if you want to. Um, a t-shirt, shorts, whatever. Uh, not only are there more important things to worry about, but that misses the point that church life is not pretty all the time. Church life's not pretty. It's not like scrolling through Pinterest, you know, with the perfect assortment of all the house items perfectly stacked and, and all the things, or the, or the gym set up. If you're like into home gyms, you're not like, I don't care about what my house looks like, but I like my home gym. Whatever it is, 
has to be perfect. Or, or like the perfectly filtered or no filtered images. Right? We live in San Diego, so every image is like no filter. I took a picture of the sun yesterday, and it's like, it always looks like it was filtered. So beautiful, right? But it's not like that. Or, or like driving by the white picket fence house with the beavers or the Brady Bunch or the Joneses smiling out front, right? Perfect smiles. Leave all of that at the door when you come to church, because this is not a place for good people. It's not a, good, a place for almost good people. It's not a place for people who, who want to be slightly improved. But it is a hospital for sinners. Some of you are doctors. Maybe that image resonates. It's a morgue where the dead are raised to life in Jesus. That's the church. And I say all that because Paul knew enough about church. Uh, he wasn't just playing church, he knew church. Uh, enough to know that when people, people who are sinners, right? That's what the church is made up of. When people say one thing and they're fully committed to it, mine's been made up perfectly. Well, the next day comes around, mine changes. Plans change. People go back into old, old habits and return to things. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. So let's look at verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I, came, or when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And so, so the apostles' fear here, when he returns to visit them, is that this church will still be as he last left it, struggling with the same old besetting sins, sexual immorality, gossip, sensuality, and the list that he gave. Everything that he really he wrote about in his first letter to them, that those things continued to plague this church, and they haven't really repented, not all of them, but they approve of and they give approval towards all of those things. And so we have to be honest about our sin. That's why verse 5, Paul famously calls them to examine yourselves. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself, he says. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? The Bible, in, in so many places, I don't have enough time to go through them all, but in so many places, it describes our constant wrestling with sin, getting in like a, a fight, a battle with sin, uh, in a lot of different ways. So the same Corinthians who Paul's speaking to now, he addressed in his first letter as saints. Hagias, as saints. Um, if we trust in Jesus, we're both sinners and we are saints. We're at war. It's a spirit versus flesh. It's the old man versus new man. These are different biblical imagery uh, to, to, to capture this. As maybe, um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, as one famous book has put it, we are part Dr. Jekyll and part Mr. Hyde. Or as Martin Luther once put it, we're at the same time righteous yet sinful. Thankfully, we're not left without hope of a solution to this great problem that we all have daily. The gospel, the good news about what God has done in Jesus for me 
is the balm, it's the medicine, it's the ointment, it's the, man, I'm a Harry Potter fan, it's the resurrection stone, but like a really good one, not like the one that that one is, if you're into Harry Potter. Um, it's it's the, 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 the greatest solution to the greatest problem of not meeting the test. Jesus himself has not failed, but has met God's ultimate test. So will you fall back on, will you lean on that today with me and tomorrow and the next day after that? Because in every place that we're still finding more and more sin, in every area where we experience brokenness and are guilty of breaking down others, God himself can and is able to enter into those places, no matter how dirty. And he can bring restoration, he can bring renewal, He can bring redemption to those places. God is ready to to respond to my sin and to your sin, not with punishment, but with redemption. Where there's doubt, he can bring us boldness and confidence. Where there's shame, he can call us back to a place to be unashamed, without guilt, without shame. Where we deserve punishment, he is actually, he's waiting to offer us mercy mercy. Where we're found out, where we're naked and we're covering up with fig leaves back in the garden, he's ready to clothe clothe us with something better than our filthiest rags, exchanging them with the spotless robes, the clean, white robes of Jesus, the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sins. So chapter 13, verse 3, Paul continues, he says of Jesus, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Verse 4, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. And then later, verse 9, the second part, Your restoration is what we pray for. Verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord's given me for building up and not for tearing down. Friends, don't you see that it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? It's His gentleness. It's a Father's love. It's grace in practice. When we get to the point where we're honest about our sin... We get to that place where, where, where God's law, don't do this, you better do that, stop doing this, try a little harder there. The law literally crucifies us and, and shows us all of those areas, all of those places where we have not measured up. We have failed to meet the test. That place of weakness is the place of God's strength. It's where the wounded can find healing, the weary can find rest, The broken can be mended. When we're honest about our sin, what we need to hear and what we need to see and what we need to taste is grace in practice. Let me share a little bit about what that might look like. When when a brother or a sister comes to you and says, man, I messed up. (laughs) This is what happened. And they confide in you and they're sharing with you. Give them the gospel. Give them grace and practice. Point them not back to their sin and, the, and themselves to look within deeper and deeper and deeper, but, 
point them to look outside of themselves, to look at the beautiful Savior who bled and died and has been raised for them for their justification. Point them to that hope over and over again. That grace over and over again. So we need a Father's love, find our identity. We need grace in practice. Being honest about our sin, being told and retold that gospel story about the cross. And we need to know finally what fellowship looks like. It's our third thing today. We have to be honest about our humanity. So if, if you're reading on uh, with chapter 13, verse 11, uh, Paul says several things that any outsider to church would have agreed with. I say that because I think sometimes people think that Christians have to have a weird code or like weird rule book or weird way of life to follow. Um, but the way we live follows the guideline of loving God and loving neighbors. And so what that looks like is not different from what being a good citizen, a good parent, a good student, a good employee, a good spouse, a good boss, what all that looks like. So looking at what, what, what he says, uh, starting with verse 11, it sounds kind of like duh, right? I mean, read, read the list for yourself. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe write down verses 11, 12, and 13. Read it on your own time. Reflect on this sermon and look back. Mark out what a healthy community uh, that's the, 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 the word that I've been using is fellowship. That's the Christianese word for community, another way to say it, what it looks like. He says, rejoice, restore, comfort, agree, live in peace, greet one another warmly and with affection. Those are values of healthy societies. Those are values, those are civic norms for any society to really do well and flourish, any community to do well. They're not strictly Christian things. And yet, because of grace and practice, Christians can start to do those things and know how to relate to one another more and more. So Christians should look different in a sense that we don't have to live to tear down or break down or destroy people and places. And yet Christians shouldn't look different at all in the sense that what that looks like is doing very ordinary things that love and value people. Human things that love everyone everywhere. So often, I think that we expect for Christians to be doing things that are superhuman. And when that happens, we usually end up making that person or those people subhuman. Because nobody's Superman, nobody's Wonder Woman. So we make people expendable, we make demands unrealistic, and we hurt each other. So, one question to, to ponder this week. Are we adding superhuman expectations onto each other such that they can never measure up? Are we treating others in ways that are either superhuman or subhuman? Are we demanding? Are we disrespecting? Both devalue and dehumanize. So treating somebody as superhuman expects too much of them. Uh, thinking about somebody as subhuman that expects too little, and it belittles them. So what does the Holy Spirit working in us and in our church, Redemption Church, what does that look like practically? Let me first say what it doesn't look like. To be a person who God the Holy Spirit has at work living inside of us, 
does not mean that we're superhuman on the one hand. Expected to do great and mighty things for God and never seeming to measure up to that unrealistic standard. On the other hand, being a person who has God the Holy Spirit in us, living inside of us, doesn't mean that we're subhuman. It doesn't mean that we have no value, we have no worth, and we should just be used up and expended for the sake of the kingdom, as if our life does not matter. Both of those extremes are distortions. Both of those extremes are lies. Both of those extremes are temptations for each of us to fall into. And both of those ignore what it means to be made in God's image and by grace restored into that beautiful image again. Though what was once lost in Adam is refound again in Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit doesn't make us something other than or something less than human. We're claimed by God's grace to be human again, fully human. Um, I'll, just, I'll speak for myself here. Um, the, the, the pressures put onto a pastor in America to be successful and perfect and studious and all of the things um, are enormous. One, uh, one person um, decided to research this, um, and he wanted to know the minimum amount of time that church members believe that pastors should, ex- should spend each week with all aspects of ministry. And so this included, I'll, I'll read down the list of some things that were looked at, prayer, sermon prep, uh, counseling, outreach and evangelism, time with new members, admin tasks, visiting the sick, trainings and teachings, being involved in the community, involvement in your denomination, attending church meetings, birthdays, worship services, and so on. So on average, guess what the a minimum amount of time expected is? Anybody want to take a guess? 60? 80? 120? All right, that's, that's a good rubric right there. Okay, on average, the minimum time church members expected their pastor to work each week was 114 hours per week. So you were close, Jeff. And make sure that you're a good husband, father, you know, you're catechizing your kid, all that, everything else. You're actually a Christian yourself, right? <laughs> um, it's no wonder why burnout and depression are so common among pastors in America. That's one example, and that was uh, maybe for you, you're feeling like this at your job. Maybe you're feeling like this with your boss, with your company, with your spouse. You feel like these are expectations that you've put onto yourself as a mom or as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as an employee, as a, fa- as a, as a son, as a daughter, and you never seem to measure up. In our context, hearing the words, chill out, become almost gospel, right? Right? Take a break, slow down, trust God are words of comfort in a crazy, busy world. God isn't calling any single one of us to be radical, to change the world, to make a big difference for Jesus. God has already changed the world forever because he himself has sent his son into the world to live and to die for us. And so the world will never be the same again because of Jesus, because he's already died and he's risen from the dead. And because of that, 
when we enter into this new community, this new fellowship that is created by that word, that pronouncement of good news, of gospel, we're given the freedom, the ability to be human again. So God is not calling you to change the world yourself as an individual, but at least for some of you, he is calling you to change a diaper. Right? Maybe that might change the world. Who knows what that little baby will do. But he's calling us to work, play, rest, study, live, serve, cry, laugh, fall in love, fall back into love with your spouse. Make time to enjoy God's good gifts. And in all of those things and in all of those ways, he's calling us to recover our humanity again. And it doesn't look all that weird or all that radical or all that super. It actually looks pretty normal. It looks more like Jesus and less like us. It looks more like Christ and less like Corinth. So really to, to close this, this sermon series, uh, I'll just end with this. Do you know what all of us, no matter who we are, so wherever identity is, no matter what you've done, our sins, past, present, and future, no matter where or when you come from, our humanity, do you know, do you know what each one of us need most? Do you know what each of us, maybe, maybe some of us are, are very heartbroken today over something, are very bothered or worried, stressed out to the max Maybe you're angry about something, enraged. What we need most is this prescription that Paul gives to a church that had broken his heart. What we need most and what we're in desperate need of is God's full blessing of love and grace and fellowship. We need the full love of God who, who, who loves so much that he made everything that is. We need the, the God of grace who loves so much that he gave everything he had up for us. We need the God of fellowship who embraces us and enters into our mess and our fray to bring gospel renewal in our hearts so that we can actually embrace and love one another. People who are unlovely. It's me. I'm an unlovely person when you get to know me. I need to be loved. You need to be loved. You're unlovely too. God's grace in our lives. God's fellowship. To our identity crisis, God gives us a new identity. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter with whom I am well pleased because of Jesus. To our sin crisis, God says, I forgive you. As far as the east is from the west, I've so separated your sin from me, and now we have fellowship. To our humanity, God says, you're free to be human again. You can laugh, you can live, you can play, you can read, you can do, do, you, can do you. <laughs> so what we need is what God alone himself gives. Renewed trust in the triune God who is, who was, who will always be. The God who's for us as our Father, who's been with us in Jesus, and who's in us by Holy Spirit. We need what the Apostle Paul gave to the Corinthians, though they didn't deserve it. What God is giving to us in this very moment right now, although we do not deserve it. Are you ready for it? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this morning. 
Amen.